welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and don't forget, tonight we have a listening party for the Vagina 101 ep- bonus episode. Register for the event at femtechfocus.org. This episode, we interview Dr. Taylor Sittler, co-founder and CEO of The Cusp. The CUSP is a digital platform for menopause care, which includes one-on-one appointments with menopause specialists, a personalized care plan, and a menopause day predictor. Dr. Taylor Sittler is a physician entrepreneur who has experience growing large med tech companies. Have you ever heard of Color Genomics? They currently go by Color. Well, it's the largest consumer medical testing company in the U.S., and they've raised over $215 million. I am super excited to see where Taylor takes this next company, The Cusp. Did you know that Sunday, yesterday, October 18th, was World Menopause Day? Well, I want to actually make a correction to something I said during this interview. I said that menopause day was the day of a woman's last period, which is incorrect. Menopause day is the day of which after 365 consecutive days, a woman doesn't have a period. Then that is the menopause day. My apologies for the mix up. I hope everyone had an amazing world menopause day yesterday and I want you to enjoy the show. Hey Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, you look like you're in a log cabin in Peru. Please tell me where <laughs> you are. <laughs> uh, it is It is kind of a log cabin. It's an old posted beam. Um, it's, it's far from Peru, unfortunately. I think I might rather be there these days. Oh, literally, though. For real. For real, Just, yeah. Know, I mean, after watching this uh, craziness last night... Um, uh, no, we're in Berkeley, California. Actually, it's a okay. um, it's a, a small cabin tucked in at the base of the hill. Um, we moved out of San Francisco two years ago, and it's been a nice way to uh, make it through COVID. Actually, uh, yeah. outside the city. Yeah, totally. Um, we actually are trying to get more femtech voices out of South America. It was one of the besides Antarctica. It was our last continent to get subscribers at. So, listeners, if you are in South America, hit us up because we want to know what's going on down there. Speaking about Peru, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, I have some cousins that live down there and have visited uh, quite a bit. There's Lima is is a really interesting city. So, um, and and he's actually a, an entrepreneur. So, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on. There. All right, Taylor's cousins, please subscribe. Get us more South American listeners, please. Okay, <laughs> support support your cousin. Um, well, I am so excited to have you on the show today. We always like to kick it off with a little bit of background about the entrepreneur themselves um, or the, the thought sure. leader, right? So most of us don't just grow up saying we're going to do femtech and, and especially not men usually, right? And so we love having male guests on. So give us, give us your scoop. What's your background? Where are you from? What did you study and how did you end up here? Totally. Um, 
Well, I, uh, so originally I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in Boston. Actually, it was about an hour south of Boston in a little town called Marion. Um, went to med school out there um, and then came out west to do my residency. Uh, I did my residency in clinical pathology at UCSF. I worked with uh, a doctor initially named Charles Chu to develop a test that would identify any pathogen in a human sample. Um, and the, the goal of that was to really make infectious disease testing much more streamlined. Um, and what we ended up doing was developing a test that's now actually used by the CDC for outbreak detection. Um, so had COVID been discovered in the United States, they would have used this test to, to find it. Wow. And it's, it's been really interesting seeing the, the shift in terms of, I mean, this was something that we had predicted back in 2010 when we were doing this work. Um, we were analyzing samples from H1N1, and we worked on new diseases from Western Africa and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's been really interesting seeing this actually come to fruition and, and see how we all deal with it. Really it's, quick um, uh, sidebar here, because my listeners know I love to do this. So I have a minor in uh, public health, and I studied emerging infectious diseases. I love bacteria. I love viruses. They are the coolest, coolest, coolest and it was very strange and it still is, but especially in the beginning of this COVID outbreak, it was like, oh my God, like the public health student in me is so interested and fascinated and kind of excited. But then the like human part of me is like, oh my God, people are dying. This is horrible. But there was like this weird tug where I was like, this is the thing we studied. This is what we studied. You know, right. did you feel that way too? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's really too bad. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds in that same way. Um, it is something that we were preparing for yeah. and that we want, you know, the test that we developed can now identify things like this in about 10 or 15 minutes. So we have the tools to do it. I yeah. think it was really heartbreaking to see that they weren't rolled out effectively and, and to see the response. You know, I think that's been the hardest thing to watch is that knowing that we have the ability to deal with this in a far better way and, and seeing it play out the way it has has been really difficult. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I so. feel the same way about femtech. I mean, there's so many opportunities to help women's health and wellness, but there's like this lack of rollout because of lack of funding or, you know, um, people that are, you know, thinking, well, women are fine. They probably don't even care that they're in pain all the time. Right. Or all these other things. So uh, it's like crazy. how many, how many intelligent things are just sitting on a bench somewhere, right? So many tools or drugs or devices, you know, that could be helping women that we just need to roll out. So that's that's what we're trying to do here, right? On this podcast, like, it's come awesome. on, get it out, get it out there, get it out there. Yeah, all right. Great, and you've interviewed such great people. I can't even believe it myself. The I love my guests. So sorry, totally segued you off of your story. We're scientists. I anticipate doing this several more times. So please okay. continue with your story. So after doing a bunch of work in um, infectious disease and outbreaks, uh, I actually turned to working on cancer. Mm. So using the same um, sequencing technology and, and algorithms um, focused on trying to make cancer sequencing and sequencing in general more efficient. Um, I don't know if you remember the uh, graph from the NHGRI showing the drop in the cost of sequencing and it was going faster than Moore's law. Right? Yeah, is... I use that graph a lot in my uh, Faramore pitch decks about how cheap it is and soon all the dating apps are going to have a DNA test and yep, totally. Right. Yeah, well, the, the corollary there was that um, all of the algorithms, most of which had been developed by uh, bio PhDs, were breaking because the amount of sequence data that was coming in was 
growing so quickly, orders so of magnitude. So much data. So yeah. um, after I finished with the um, the work on infectious disease, went over to Berkeley and worked with a guy named Dave Patterson to build a group of computer scientists to focus on those genetic algorithms. And we built algorithms that could do sort of three to six orders of magnitude faster processing so that we could uh, enable that to happen. I um, am so grateful for data scientists because during my PhD in genetics, I tried to learn how to code and I do not have a personality type to figure out after six hours that my slash was the wrong direction in the, in the algorithm. I can't, I just can't do it. <laughs> and so I am so grateful to the coders of the world that can take my DNA data and then make a graph out of it. So thank y'all. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Well, I'm, I'm, I've been really excited to see a bunch of folks get involved in that. Mm -hmm. um, that intersection between technology and genetics is really a fruitful one. Yeah. Um, and that really led me to sort of the next thing when I uh, finished my residency, um, left that group at Berkeley and thankfully they're still going. They're, they've built several really great open source tools since then. Um, but I connected with two serial entrepreneurs who had been executives at both Google and then Twitter to build a company called Color Genomics, which was dedicated to making genetic testing a part of primary care. Mm -hmm. And um, what we did, I think Color did really three things. Uh, we were able to drop the cost of sequencing, right? And part of that was that graph um, and the, the acceleration of tools. Um, the second thing that the company did was uh, to enable doctors and patients to connect and to redo that process because um, genetic testing reports are typically written by genetics PhDs, mm -hmm. who, as you know, are really smart, but aren't often focused on making things understandable. Right? <laughs> Understanding those papers can be pretty difficult. Yeah. And so, um, so we just made it easy for both the patient and the doctor to understand, and that report became the starting point for a really great conversation. Um, the third thing that Color did was enable uh, women to get tested and, and then the population in general to get tested after that. And it was really, you know, as you can tell, I've been wandering a little bit in, in my career over the mm -hmm. past 10 years. But it was that experience at Color uh, over the first three years that really convinced me that I needed to start the cut. Um, the, um, you know, what, what Color did really well, I think, is we, we created a product that, that nailed it and that met a really important need in medicine. The... The thing that, that was um, difficult to watch is that um, while Color is now, you know, the largest medical genetic testing company in the U.S., uh, outside of, say, 23andMe and Ancestry, which are more on the consumer side, mm -hmm. um, it, it will be probably 10 years before genetics becomes a part of primary care. Yeah. And so, and the reason for that is that doctors don't change the way they practice very quickly. Mm -hmm. right? You have to knock on a lot of doors, go to a lot of conferences, do that kind of thing. So, you know, after Color, um, I wanted to start a company that would really change the way that we practice medicine, because I think that is the next step in sort of our evolution as a healthcare system. Absolutely. Yeah. Healthcare delivery innovation has been really interesting to learn about in this femtech industry, because like we said in the beginning, there's all of these solutions that exist. There's all these women with issues. And then like that, usually that person in the middle is the physician. And so... Physicians are overworked. They only have 10 minutes per patient. They, you know, like, how are they going to learn about all these new digital tools? And so, yeah, healthcare delivery. So interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, and I, I'm glad you outlined all those issues because it's really, I don't blame doctors at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a, a system that we've created that 
does not align incentives correctly yeah. and doesn't give physicians the time that they need to actually treat and help patients. Right. Yeah, my co-founder is a pediatric gynecologist. We're definitely pro-MDs. We we do not blame the MDs out there. We know that they want to help, right? Yeah. Definitely. Um, so that was the first goal. And I think, you know, getting, I, I think I've been sort of on the fringes of femtech, if you will, for probably, you know, eight years now. Um, my mentor, one of my mentors at UCSF was uh, a woman named Laura Vampier who's really a pioneer and a giant in the breast cancer space. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she's built a company that uh, does one of only two tests that can help determine whether a woman needs chemo. Um, she's, and she's a professor at UCSF. She runs the iSpy trials. She's really done a lot of great stuff. Um, and through color, uh, I mean, that, that influenced us at color in terms of, you know, some of the early work that we did. And our first test was for breast and ovarian cancer risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, our early adopters were uh, women 35 to 55, taking care of kids and parents. And I really got to know that segment um, over the three or four years that I was there. And I think the, you know, the story that I tell that sort of encapsulates a lot of that is a short segment that I did with one of our early uh, adopters from San Diego. This was a 35-year-old woman who had two kids, knew she had a, a risk of uh, breast cancer because her sister had had it, and I think her aunt had died at a young age from it. And um, she was very intent on getting tested. The test at that point cost $4,000, and she had been denied three times by insurance. Oh, yeah. So when Color came out, um, dropping the price from $4,000 down to $249, she bought it immediately. Uh, as part of her workup, she had her ovaries out and found out that she had stage 2 ovarian cancer. Wow. And, you know, that was really powerful. We... We now have hundreds of testimonials from customers like that who, you know, these are women who really keep after it and they're willing to pay for help when they find it. They really value it. And, you know, this woman saved her own life, right? Because she really kept after it even when the medical institution said, no, we're not mm -hmm. going to pay for this for you. You don't, you don't have, you don't meet our criteria. You're not at risk. Um, and Speaking so, of moving I to Peru, like, right? <laughs> 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 Yeah, or or actually, you know, I was on this um, I was on one of the these sort of uh, health tech founder calls the other day for Lightspeed, and um, a bunch of people were talking about their experience with the Indian healthcare system mm. and how much better healthcare is in India. Like this guy had broken his arm. I think he was flying from Africa to India. You know, got an appointment basically on the plane, showed up, walked right into the doctor's office. The doctor talked to him for a little bit took him next door, did the x-ray, he was done, and it cost him $15, yep. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and Cuba actually is another example where I think um, we do, you know, they have really great health care. They train most of the doctors, actually, that end up going through South America, or they mm. did in the past. Wow. I'm not sure what the funding situation is now. But when I was in medical school, we really used them as uh, an example of one of the best public health care systems in the world. Wow. Because... What they would do is actually assign doctors to specific blocks and they would do house calls oh. and they were able to keep people a lot healthier than they do in this country. Yeah. So anyway, I've derailed this again, but, <laughs> but there's, there are a lot of great examples out there. Yeah. And so, so you're at color, you're like saving women's lives. You're like, I love science. I love innovation. Healthcare delivery needs fixing. So what is the cusp? Yeah. So um, the cusp is really dedicated to helping 
women in this age group uh, who are largely in perimenopause and menopause um, get the care that they need uh, and then to, to set them up for a better midlife. Um, women's health these days is sort of split into, say, you know, three different phases. There's, you know, the sort of early gynecology in your teens to early 20s. Then there's the OB who helps you from your mid-20s through um, the end of fertility. Mm-hmm. And then there's this big gap, right? And you don't see, there's there's no one that, that specializes in women's care otherwise, other than, say, a gynecological oncologist or a geriatrician who sees you when you're 80. So we're really trying to create this healthcare specialty that doesn't exist and provide it for women who are age 40 to 70. Um, the way that we have designed the cusp so far is essentially it's a platform um, that includes, um, you know, it's a website with, um, we have a chat function and we have uh, articles and we have a number of different um, uh, tech-enabled services for women that are available, including uh, virtual care. So we can do telemedicine visits over video, provide prescriptions as well as supplements. And we intend to be sort of that integrative center that women can go to for this kind of care. What we found is that uh, four out of five OBGYNs are not trained mm-hmm. in uh, caring for women going through perimenopause and menopause. Which is insane. And, like they literally are specializing yeah. in women and then they only specialize up through fertility. And it's like, what? No. Yeah. <laughs> what? yeah so it's great. Well, and you know, they, they're, you know, they think of themselves as taking care of women through having babies. Yeah. After that, it's like, uh, that's somebody else's specialty. Yeah. And so, so it's the, yeah, again, there's, there's this missing specialty. And, and what we've done is pulled together all the specialties that touch on this because OBGYNs aren't trained, right? We have, mm-hmm. um, we've brought in neuropsychiatry. We brought in, um, uh, in internal medicine as well as cardiology, dermatology, mental health. Um, there's, and we've also brought in integrative medicine and naturopathy because there are a lot of women that want these, they want both natural as well as medical solutions. Yeah. And so we want to meet them where they are. We think that ultimately hormones are a good match for a lot of women, but that um, if they want to start with black cohosh, that we want to provide the best there. And so we've built these integrated protocols um, where a woman can connect with one provider who can provide all of that care for them, Um, rather than having to go to three or four different providers, you know, getting medication from one, Mm -hmm. getting supplement from another, and then trying to figure out how to pull it all together. Yeah. And is it live? How long ago did you start this? So we started uh, at basically early 2019 um, was when, when the company opened its doors. We did an early beta uh, in late October or November of last year, mm-hmm. um, initially with just 50 women. And then we launched the service of expert care after that. Um, that we offered for about six months. And then in July, we added a hormone test to enable women to predict time to their final menstrual period because we were getting a lot of interest in it. And uh, because I think women really want some agency over this. Mm-hmm. They want to understand what's happening with their bodies. They want to understand um, how long. Is it two years or is it 10 years? Because mm-hmm. that's what your doctor will tell you. This is a two to 10 year process. Yeah. So why don't we narrow that down a little bit? Why don't we help you get some personalized care and understand this a little bit better? And that's now the first step at the cusp. Um, followed by expert care to improve women's quality of life. And we're developing a maintenance uh, plan that we'll be rolling out in a couple of months. And we can talk more about that. Wow. Did you ever think you were going to be leading a menopause 
endeavor. <laughs> like you wake up in the mornings being like, I have found my calling. Like yeah. <laughs> it definitely was a switch from genetics. I mean, yeah. I will say it was, it was a big difference, but you know, when I saw this, um, I'd had some, you know, my mom had a difficult experience going through menopause. She had uh, vertigo, mm-hmm. um, which is a rare side effect, but um, with the fluctuations in estrogen, some women get their vertigo triggered. And really? I, I did not know that. I'm going to tell my mom because she, we, we never talked about her menopause till I started this podcast. Now we do. Um, but <laughs> she <laughs> actually started to suffer from uh, vertigo a few years ago. So you know, my listeners know that I'm just, I learn on the fly in this interview. So uh, I'm going to tell my mom that. Wow. I didn't know that. Okay. So, so vertigo as a symptom. Definitely. Well, and just, just FYI, there, there are a number of other causes. My yeah. mom also had Meniere's disease. Um, so she would get uh, vertigo episodes without this, wow. but it, it became really severe as she went into perimenopause. Yeah. And yeah. once she got an estrogen patch, it really went away. Huh. So um, that was sort of, my early inkling on this. And then when I dove into this area, it just seemed like this massive gap in the healthcare system. Yeah. And when, you know, thinking about starting a company that's going to change the way we practice, this seemed like the right place to start it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was an an unwitting, I I have become an unwitting menopause specialist, but very happy that I went into it. That's so amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's important women deserve to get support during this time of their lives, right? When there has been yeah. historically zero support um, and they deserve technology and, um, you know, they deserve the best kind of scientists working on this. What's your experience been like leading a, you know, future of personalized medicine through genetics and now leading a, you know, women's health that isn't necessarily about fertility company? Um Tell us about some of your like personal experiences, like talking to people about it. Like how did they react? Like you as a man leading this, whereas you probably were never questioned that when you're doing just a genetics company, like what's that difference? Has there been a big difference? Well, I think, I mean, every, every company has its challenges. Um, and I think any area that you dive into in healthcare, there's initially a lot of resistance. So the resistance in genetics was to offering this testing across the country, mm-hmm. right? When we went into it, so when we started the company, um, it was right after 23andMe had been banned by the FDA. Oh, I remember that year. I was, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. And, and so we, and we had a lot of specialists that, and geneticists that came out against us mm-hmm. because they had traditionally been the gatekeepers around this testing and they they saw this as a threat to their job Mm -hmm. Um, now that's largely gone but that took six or seven years right yeah yeah. um and that was a big controversy for a while even some of the folks that i trained with at ucsf i was really disappointed to see some of my professors come out against us right Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know ended up having a couple of pretty heated conversations with them about it um in, in which i still think we were on the right side of it offering this testing to a broader set of the population, um, the idea that people can't handle handle the results, I think, is it's a little misguided, right? It's a little too paternalistic for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think you know every company, particularly in healthcare, has its challenges, mm-hmm. right? Um, this one, you know, definitely being a man leading a women's health company, I think you know people are like, why are you doing this? Are you trying to make money off of us? Are you, you know, what, what's your motivation? Yeah. Right? Why would you help women? And 
I mean, I guess for me as a doctor, just taking a step back, when you go into medicine, you go into medicine to help people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this was an area that was really underserved. And we saw that there were a lot of people that were not receiving the care that they need. And so for me, it's pretty easy. Right. That's such a crazy question to be asked. Like, why would you help women? It's like, why wouldn't I want to help women? You know, we have one of our advisors is uh, Dr. Faz Bashi. And um, he is actually, although he's the advisor to Femtech Focus, he's very bullish on like, he just supports uh, human health, you know, because he's like, for me, it's not really about like, I'm going to just champion uteruses, you know, it's like, no, I think everyone's health should be improved. And that includes women's. And so yeah, we have had other male founders on here and um, they have said when they pitch to investors in particular, they say like, well, why are you doing this? You're, you can't be passionate about women's health, really, you know, like, so what's the other, you know, and it's like, what? How many women worked on freaking Viagra, you know, like, and no, women right. wouldn't be asked that. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it'll, it'll take some time, I yeah. think. And, and eventually, just like I think with the genetics thing, this will yeah. go away. Yeah. And femtech is a large enough space. I mean, I think they're saying now 200 billion, 300 billion. It's a large enough market that, of course, women and men are going to have to work together. To uh-huh. work, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, so I think it's one of those questions that will, you know, come and go. Good. Well, I am grateful for you being one of the the first people to take on that question of why would you want to help women? Because I hope that soon that is not no longer a question. It's an obvious like, of course, everyone should care about women. So thank you for for paving that path for future male founders in this industry. Um, I wanted to dive into a little bit of science because I love it. Um, So, you know, you were talking about predicting menopause. Is it possible to predict menopause? And if so, how? Yeah, so this is research that's really just come out in the last few years. Um, There are several different ways that people have used to try and predict time. So typically the prediction is for the final menstrual period, right? Mm -hmm. Your last period. Menopause is defined in retrospect, one one year after that final period. So typically what people are trying to predict is that final period. Menopause then is one year after by definition. Yeah. We talked with Jill um, Angelo about menstrual uh, menopause day. It's a day, right? It's like the last right. day that you bleed, that's the day, right? So, okay. Yeah, totally. And so the ability to predict this has um, risen in the past couple of years. And I, I'd say where it's going is it's a combination of factors from the clinical side. So mm-hmm. symptoms, menstrual history, things like that and the hormone testing side. And the, the interesting development, the, the sort of science geek in me, loves that we're using um, these hormones to for a number of different things, including that, that prediction to final menstrual period. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, uh, the most relevant one is, is a hormone called AMH, or anti-malarian hormone, okay. that is um, most recognizable to women as being a part of IVF. Typically, so so AMH roughly uh, is an estimate of the uh, the number of eggs that are being produced um, in the ovary at any one time, and it it steadily drops as a woman approaches menopause. Uh, Because women don't women are born with the set of eggs that they're going to have for the rest Mm -hmm. of their life, and so every month when they release one, they're they're going down a count, right? So that's what you're talking about. 
Right. Well, and, and it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that in that you have a number of eggs that are sort of competing to be the one that ends mm-hmm. up getting released. And AMH is, is released from a number of those active eggs. So it's, okay. it's actually not just the one egg. Yes. Um, You're and, like, how and, many active eggs do you have competing to get into the fallopian tube? And like the more racers you have, the more pe- eggs trying to get out, it's like a signal of how many e- fertility oh, listeners, sort of. listeners, you can't see his face. He's like, oh, you're trying, but no. <laughs> well, I, it, it's just so hard to, um, it's so hard to develop these uh, metaphors that really work on the fly. Yeah, yeah. We're close, yeah. but, but you can, you can think of it basically as roughly a measure of the number of eggs. And, and okay. if you look out on the internet, there are a number of different explanations for how AMH works. Okay. Um, we've developed this one that we in, include in our own report. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, I mean, the, the thing is there, there are notable exceptions, right? Women can uh, have children with a very low AMH level. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't always predict uh, fertility. Um, and likewise, I think women can have, particularly if they have PCOS or if there are other concomitant conditions that a woman has, she may have a higher AMH for a while, and then it can drop pretty precipitously. So it's not a perfect predictor, but it's much better than many of the other hormones, which fluctuate mm-hmm. over the, the monthly menstrual cycle. AMH is very constant, and so we can use it uh, to predict roughly when a woman is going to get her final period. And that works um, in sort of nine out of 10 cases. At wow. And it's like a direct-to-consumer test that she would buy off of the website to take? Exactly. So you can go to thecuff.com and we have two offerings there. Our expert care service is on the main page and then our hormone test is um, is available as well. Have you seen a huge uptick in the expert care because it's virtual and right now during COVID telemedicine is just booming? Yeah. So it, our telemedicine service is doing better. I, I'd say the um, the difficulty with it is that often women don't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. They don't know that it's there, right? They're, they're looking for help. They're looking for care in some way, but they often don't know that it's an issue, right? Yeah. I think most women don't know what to expect. I, you know, I was listening to your, um, the podcast you did a few weeks ago with the founder of Wellfem, mm-hmm. and she talked specifically about how um, women don't have these conversations with their mothers, right? They talk about yep. <laughs> puberty, but they don't talk about menopause. Mm-hmm. And so they're not, they're not familiar with what's going to happen. And, you know, there was another point she made about some women being very particular about the specific, you know, sort of weird science in, or, or weird treatment that she's into. And so there's a variety of different things and, and this whole sort of a range of potential treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, that women are looking for. So there's a there's a lack of education, and when they see the telehealth service that we've offered, often it's not clear what that is initially. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the hormone test, that I think women understand very uh, very quickly that hey, this could help me understand where I am and, and understand what I need to do. Yeah. Well, thank you again for um, lifting that weight. Uh, it is always difficult when you are a founder creating a a technology, a service, an app that is is so new that you're literally educating the consumer as to why they should want this, you know? But then once you cross that barrier, like hopefully in 10 years or so, 
any woman think going into menopause is going to know more about it. And she's going to know like, Oh, I'm going to, I need my telemedicine. Like that's what I should go to first. But right now you're like, we try to convince these consumers about this like new way of doing things. So again, you're lifting the weight there. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. No, absolutely. And and I think there are a lot of companies out there now trying to do the same thing. We we have seen a rise in, in the number of companies in the space and, I think with the increased education that's available, I'm hoping that, you know, within a year or two, this becomes much more mainstream. Yeah. I mean, I'm only 29, but by the time I hit menopause, if you only had in-person appointments, I would not go to you. Similar to how I'm a millennial, and if you don't have an online scheduling platform, I don't want to book a time with you. <laughs> so <laughs> Totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it- and, and the care doesn't have to be limited to visits. I think, you know, mm. one of the real values that we provide as a telehealth service is that we can check in and modify prescriptions much more quickly than you can with your traditional yes, doctor. Yeah. And, and hormones and, and, you know, the changing hormones that women experience during menopause require those changes. And so it becomes a much more fluid conversation mm-hmm. than you would be able to have with your in-person physician. Definitely. Well, actually, can you actually tell us more about hormone therapy? Absolutely. Uh, so there's a hormone therapy has gone through this major transition. There were a hundred million prescriptions for hormone therapy in the United States in 2000. And uh, right this year, I think they're expected to be somewhere between six and eight million. Wow. So we've seen a radical drop. 90%. And yeah. Most of that came in the year in, in the early 2000s with the release of the Women's Health Initiative. Mm-hmm. So there was a massive government study that was done. Um, mostly on older women, so women sort of even 60 and above, Mm -hmm. that um, showed a a link between hormone therapy and breast cancer. And that really scared everyone. And, you know, almost all physicians stopped prescribing hormones at that point. And we're still seeing the the fallout from that today. Uh, There's a great book, actually, that was written by uh, a a man named uh, Avram Blooming called Estrogen Matters which is worth checking out and and talks about this story and the transformation and how we're actually moving back to hormone therapy Mm -hmm. now because, um, A, I think we've addressed some of the issues that were in the original hormone therapy. Um, So we were were previously using conjugated estrogens and other um, non-bioidentical formulations, um, and the the, the, um, progestins we were using were an issue as well, actually. Mm. That was the bigger association with breast cancer risk. Um, what we're seeing now actually is with the estrogen formulations, estrogen alone therapy um, has been associated with a reduced breast cancer risk. So um, the, wow. again, the tides are changing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're like, oops, actually JK. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and the, the, I mean, this is really a JK moment where the, the, um, the second part of this is that the, the people that did the women's health initiative study are coming out and saying, Actually, we were wrong. Yeah. There isn't there isn't that association that we saw. There are in very certain circumstances mm-hmm. in the way that we constructed that study, but um, there you know there's a huge shift in the scientific community yeah. in in terms of how hormones are being thought of, thought of, and hopefully they'll go back to being uh, mainstream use because mm-hmm. these are substances that are produced by the body, and in fact this drop. So women experience about a 99% drop in estrogen as they go through menopause. Wow. And that totally changes metabolism in the body. Um, it puts women at risk for diabetes, heart disease, osteoporosis, 
we're finding a link to Alzheimer's and certain types yep. of cancer. Yeah. And so hormone therapy, I think, should be an option for most women, provided mm-hmm. that they don't have the stroke or, or other cancer risk that would mm-hmm. include it. Um, and, you know, I think one of the real values of the test that we've produced is in helping women decide when they should start that therapy mm-hmm. if they're interested. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can already hear some listeners saying like, but that's not natural. That's not natural. Mm-hmm. But it's also not natural for humans to live longer than like 40 years old, you know? And right. so the fact that women are living half of their lives post with 99% less estrogen is also like, like evolution is not caught up. And I actually studied uh, evolutionary genetics. And so I have a lot of opinions about how we are not evolving anymore. The best example is if we were still evolving, everyone with glasses would be dead because you wouldn't be able to see and you wouldn't be able to eat or blah, blah, blah. Right. And so people with terrible vision are still reproducing. So we're not really evolving y'all. Um, so here we have like (laughs) half, half of a woman's life with this really unnatural 99% less estrogen. That's crazy. So, well, that's also really interesting. You know, I, I, it's always kind of sad when science publishes something and then later has to go back, but that's also part of discovery and research. And the most important part is that scientists can put their hand up and admit it, right? Like that's the most important part. And, um, and now it's just kind of getting that the society back on board with it. Um, so random question. I just came to me. So you know how insulin, they like have bacteria make insulin. Yep. Is that how they make estrogen? How do we make estrogen? So, well, no, I think estrogen can be synthesized in the lab today. Oh, okay. It's it's bioidentical estrogen. So it's the same estrogen that's produced by your body, by your ovaries and by your adrenal glands. Um, But previously, um, so, and this is, this is part of that story um previously they were producing estrogen from horse mare urine <gasps> so uh and and that was part of the the issue is these these unnatural conjugated estrogen um it was because it was coming of, from horse urine oh my yeah. god yeah so so hormones that were previously taken now and, and there's it's still out there but it's less commonly prescribed yeah. um up until the 2000s was predominantly produced by horse urine wow <laughs> the you know when you think find out where stuff comes from you know <laughs> i mean <laughs> like, yeah bacteria starts to sound okay right <laughs> yeah yeah also the scientist who was like i have the protocol y'all you know like i own a farm and i figured it out um that's hilarious well, this, this has been so interesting. Is there anything um, else you wanted our listeners to know? Because uh, menopause is definitely a hot topic on this podcast. Our listeners are very eager to see the innovation. So I just want to give you an opportunity. If, there, if there's anything else I, I didn't ask about for menopause that you want to get across to our listeners. Sure. Um, well, I, I would say come check us out at the cusp. We have mm-hmm. a lot of great articles. We're starting to put up videos. So, you know, if you're interested in learning about it, there's a lot available on the site. And then in a couple of weeks uh, for World Menopause Day, we're actually putting on a symposium um, that is all virtual this year. We've got some of the top medical and scientific experts coming across from across the country. Um, we're, we're putting it on in conjunction with a scientific group called AHA, Advancing Health After Hysterectomy. And um, we're going to have the president of the North American Menopause Society as well as really some of the top experts talking about these issues, the controversies associated with um, 
hormones and, and menopause. Um, we're going to have a track focused on hormones in the female brain, um, including Luann Brissendine, who wrote The Female Brain. She's one of our medical advisors, as well as some others. Um, Pauline Mackey, who's very well, um, her, her research has been really foundational in the space. And then the third track that we're going to be doing is on um, sexual health in this mm-hmm. time because that's a, it's a big issue for a lot of women. Mm-hmm. So come check us out at thecusp.com. Um, our symposium is coming out. It'll be the 15th through the 18th of, of October. When is, um, when is National Menopause Day? Uh, it's called World Menopause Day, and it's the 18th of October <gasps> each year. All right. I'm writing that down. We're going to make a, a thing about it. That's awesome. Um, wow. Right. Thank you so much. That is so interesting. I am going to talk to you after this interview about like potential attending it. Like that sounds like super fascinating. Um, It's so funny you bring up World Menopause Day. I was thinking, how do people make national holidays? Could Femtech Focus make a World Femtech Day? (laughs) This is what I think about in the shower, y'all. If you ever wonder, what does Brittany think about her spare time? It's like, how do I make a national (laughs) Femtech Day? (laughs) You should put it in October because October is like breast cancer awareness month. It's yes. world menopause. I think it should become a month. Yes. Um, oh but, my gosh. My yeah. branding advisor is going to kill me. Cause now I just remembered that women usually dye their hair pink in October, right? For breast cancer yeah. awareness. She's going to yeah, kill so- me because I changed my hair color a lot. And she's like, we have to change your website now, but sorry, Sahar. I might dye my <laughs> hair pink. <laughs> oh man. Well, this has been awesome. so awesome. I want to ask you uh, two last questions that our listeners sure. love. The first one is uh, we have a lot of aspiring founders that listen. What's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Gosh, I'd be hard pressed to figure out an area that doesn't need innovating. It's a trick um, question. Yeah. The, the answer yeah, is everything. The, <laughs> it's, it's everything. I will say there's been a lot of improvement around IVF and fertility. Mm-hmm. I think people have, have started by chasing the money there mm-hmm. um, because they know those procedures are well reimbursed. Um, so I might not start there, but I think in everything from, you know, uh, hormones and menstrual care, um, you know, early, 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 I think um, particularly for teens and, and early 20 somethings, there's still not a lot of great care. Most of the focus has been on sort of women 25 to 35. So whether it's modern fertility or Tia or, you know, um, there's, a, there's a ton of IVF companies that have, have come out for there. Mm-hmm. I think earlier than that or later than that, there is a ton. PCOS is a major mm-hmm. area that needs a lot of help. Um, I'll throw out a shout out to Heather Bowerman at Dot Lab, who's done a lot Dot of Dot Lab, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some, there's some great new stuff coming for that. But that impacts a large fraction of, of women uh, and, and still needs a lot of help and support. So there's a whole bunch of, uh, I think, you know, sort of pseudo conditions that haven't adequately been uh, identified by physicians yet that need a bunch of help. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would be a great uh, starting point. Um, I'm also happy to talk more with anyone who's, who's interested. So. Awesome. How would they reach out to you? Just in, like your info at the cusp? Taylor at the cusp.com. Taylor at the So listeners, a, a sneaky, sneaky trick as a previous founder myself, the founders are usually customer service for the first few years. I know I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. It's a secret secret. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Support at the cusp.com also works. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I always found it so funny when there people message Faramore info at Faramore. Can I speak to the? And I'm like, oh my god, they. I'm. It's just me, y'all. I'm just me, right? <laughs> it's hilarious. Well, and our last question is, um, what does the femtech industry as a whole need the most right now in order to be successful? Um, I think it. I think it still needs more um, investment, and it needs. I think I think it needs more support from the VC community. Mm -hmm. It's coming, mm -hmm. but I don't think you know. There was an article in Forbes earlier this year that VCs are finally ready to talk about menopause. Yes, I, yeah. don't, I don't think that they've really shifted into this market, nor do I really think they understand it yet. Mm -hmm. And it's massive, and and it needs additional support. I think there are a lot of really passionate people that want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need the money to do it. Yeah. So I think that would be the the single biggest thing that still needs um, help. And certainly in, in my pitches, um, you can tell right away whether uh, a VC is going to work out or not. Yep. I mean, I've had a lot of them are, you know, you, you talk to, a, you know, most VCs are still, you know, 80, 90% male. Mm -hmm. And you walk into the room and they're like, menopause, that's an issue. And they'll be, you know, if, if you're lucky, the guy will be like, well, I talked to my wife and she didn't have a problem with it. So I, I really don't think this is, yeah. this is a thing. And, and I think that needs to change. Yep. Um, it, it's happening, but it, it you know, that's yeah. the biggest thing. Well, that's why Femtech Focus is raising our own venture fund, because I'm here always preaching that, awesome. you know, um, if you want to make money, invest in women's health and wellness. And so I'm in this for the good of women, but I'm also like a previous investor, right? And like, this is the smart move. But also, I'm tired of founders having that experience of investors saying this isn't an issue when it's like very obviously the issue. I'm also a big believer in your investors should also be your biggest champions and supporters. And if you've managed to convince a VC to invest in you, but they have zero experience in women's health, that's not very helpful. Like you got money, but you don't have any advice. And so that's why Femtech Focus, we're raising our own fund to uh, put, lead the charge, get it funded, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. Taylor, this has been so awesome. Um, thank you for all you do. Talk about menopause, one of our hottest topics. And uh, please uh, let us know how the conference goes. I want to come. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and uh, we will talk to you soon. That sounds great. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. And, and thanks for doing this podcast, raising your fund. It's really amazing work. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Taylor Sittler, co-founder and CEO of The Cusp. Did you know that 80% of OBGYNs do not receive any menopause training during the residency? Isn't that insane? That's why companies like The Cusp are so important. Well, don't forget, register on our website for tonight's live listening party of the bonus episode Vagina 101, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. You can watch the video recording of the episode on the resource tab of our website as well. If you love Femtech Focus and you love our content, then please consider donating to our nonprofit organization. Your contributions go directly to us elevating the Femtech industry. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. <laughs>